The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is John Hanson Flashin, editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today I have the pleasure of talking with the principal authors of two featured articles reporting on the health care crisis in war-torn Syria. These articles are published in the February 2016 issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Dr. Zahir Saloul is an associate clinical professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He specializes in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Salul is also the immediate past president and one of the founders of the Syrian American Medical Society. This is a North American organization devoted foremost to supporting healthcare delivery inside Syria and healthcare relief to Syrian refugees. With several co-authors, Zaire wrote the special article in our February issue, which provides an overview of the impact of war within Syria on the health care of civilians residing there and on the current much depleted health care delivery infrastructure serving those civilians. Also with us this morning is Anas Mugabri, an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Wayne State University Detroit Medical Center. He's also a member of the Syrian American Medical Society. Together with Craig Weinart, an associate professor of medicine in the pulmonary and critical care division at the University of Minnesota, Anas wrote a perspective describing an innovative tele-ICU program that links diaspora Syrian physicians in North America with healthcare providers serving Syrians currently residing in the country. The current Syrian conflict started in March 2011 with a rapidly escalating civil uprising against the government of Bashar al-Assad. The country has since divided into multiple warring factions. The hostilities have fragmented the country. This war is unusual in the degree to which civilians are deliberately targeted, strategically targeted, often by indiscriminate bombing. Many hospital and healthcare facilities have been targeted and damaged or destroyed. Zayar, please provide us with an overview of the toll this has taken on civilian health and healthcare resources inside Syria. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hansen Flashen, for having me in this uh, podcast. And uh, I'm really honored to speak about the very important issues that we are facing and uh, our colleagues in Syria are facing, which is the impact of the war's humanitarian crisis in our lifetime on healthcare. And uh, throughout the last uh, five years right now, uh, we've been dealing with the consequences of uh, what we believe is a systematic attack on healthcare and healthcare infrastructures in many areas in Syria by the fighting parties, especially the Syrian government. So what we have witnessed first that there was deliberate attacks on uh, healthcare workers who are perceived by the government that are serving 
the civilians um, or the other side. And uh, according to one of the organizations called the Physicians for Human Rights, there are more than 700 healthcare workers in Syria that were killed, doctors and nurses who were killed just because they are trying to save lives. And this is something that we have not witnessed in other conflicts. And in addition to that, about 300 hospitals and field hospitals were bombed and destroyed. And it looks like it's systematic throughout the last five years. More than 75% of ambulances in Syria also were targeted and destroyed, uh, according to the WHO. Because of the systematic attacks on health care, many of the doctors and nurses in Syria have started to um, uh, flee and uh, to become themselves refugees. And uh, the last report from the WHO a couple of years ago have detailed that more than 50% of doctors in Syria have fled the country, 50% in a developing country leaving their homeland. Uh, we're talking about 15,000 doctors in Syria that they were forced to flee. So because of the shortage of physicians and nurses, uh, what we're seeing right now in many areas in Syria is that uh, many people do not have access to basic health care. We're talking about pediatricians, uh, primary care physicians, patient, uh, physicians who can treat uh, chronic diseases. Also, patients do not have access to medications because medications are either expensive uh, and because of the high inflation rate due to the war, there is no access to it, and also because there are no, no pharmacies in many of the areas that have been um, practically a war zone. The vaccination rate is very low. Before the crisis, Syria had the vaccination rate close to 95% of children below five. Now it's about 10%, 25% in some areas. In areas under siege, even it's less than that. Because of that, we have an epidemic of polio uh, in Syria in, the, in 2013, uh, before polio was extinct in Syria for 15 years before the crisis. The life expectancy went down by 20 years in four years. Uh, the life expectancy in Syria before the crisis was uh, 75 years, and now it's 55 years, according to the WHO. Their physicians and administrators in many areas in Syria are dealing with limited, very limited resources. I'm a critical care specialist in Chicago. Sometimes we get uh, these uh, emails in the morning that don't use Zosan, use Astrionam. We have limited supply of Zosan or Propofol and so forth. In Syria, they don't have sometimes antibiotics. They don't have IV fluid. They don't have blood products, and they have to deal with extreme shortage of medical supplies and medications. Um, and that added a lot of stress on the healthcare system itself. So uh, many times physicians have to deal with very uh, ethical questions, difficult ethical questions that we don't have to deal with. You know, one of my friends who's an anesthesiologist in an area called Dain Terma near Damascus, um, when there was a chemical weapon attack a couple of years ago, he told me that his hospital can accommodate 20 patients and he had 700 patients coming within a few hours, all of them having severe respiratory distress, and some of them had respiratory failure. He had only three ventilators, and he had to choose which patient should be intubated and which patient basically are allowed to die. These are questions that we don't deal with in the United States or in many areas in the world. And as you see also in the news right now, uh, the Syrian physicians and nurses have to deal with extreme cases of malnutrition uh, in areas under siege. So what I would say that there is a systematic attack and disintegration of the healthcare system and healthcare infrastructure in Syria that have led to reduced survival, to a fleeing of physicians, 
and Syria and neighboring countries will suffer from the consequences of the war for the foreseen future. Zahir, what are Syrian diaspora physicians doing to help support the delivery of health care inside Syria? We're doing many things, and the article have detailed some of the um, creative ideas that we're trying to deal with the situations. Uh, so uh, first of all, we started uh, what's called cross-border relief, medical relief. So we established offices in Turkey, in Jordan, in Lebanon, uh, and through which we've been sending medical supplies to the areas uh, in northern and southern Syria. We cover the whole uh, Syrian territories. We have about 104 hospitals, field hospitals, polyclinics, mobile clinics. We found that mobile clinics are very helpful because many times you have displaced populations who are moving from an area to another one because of the war. So sometimes you have, for example, right now you have the population in Aleppo moving from the city of Aleppo to north of Aleppo and the a hospital will not accommodate them, but mobile clinic probably will be a more appropriate way to deal with the displacement and the frequent displacement. We are also training physicians in Syria on how to deal with polytrauma and war situations. So we had started several uh, training courses in ATLS or modified ATLS um, protocols. We introduced portable ultrasound uh, for Syrian physicians uh, as a point of care services to the patients because they don't have access to CT scan and radiology. So portable ultrasounds are very doable and uh, portable ways to uh, diagnose pneumothorax and pleural effusion, uh, internal bleeding, uh, pericardial effusion, and uh, we had a great success in introducing portable ultrasound. We're also connecting um, ICUs and hospitals inside Syria with specialists in the United States through telemedicine. So I was in a visit in Syria uh, just a month ago, uh, early January. I visited uh, a hospital in the city of Maria in northwest Syria where the ICU is connected to a critical care specialist in Michigan, Dr. Mugrabiya, who is with us, uh, through a satellite internet and a camera. So Dr. Mugrabiya can look at his iPhone or his computer and he can talk with the physician on the other side in Maria in Syria. He can see the patient, he can zoom the camera on the patient, he can zoom on the monitor on the ventilator, and um, he can uh, advise the technician or the nurse on what to do with that patient. And similar to what we have here in the United States, I, I happen to uh, also be part of the EICU program in my city, but this is something that we introduced to Syria, and we found it very helpful. And actually, it is the most helpful thing that our physicians inside Syria are telling us because it provides coverage for 24 hours. Um, nurses and technicians are feeling more comfortable that they have support from specialists in the United States. There is a shortage of specialists in critical care. So this is something that we find is very helpful in the conflict and war areas. We're trying to access, of course, apply a lot of uh, pressure on our government and the UN. Um, advocacy is very important tool in the crisis of Syria because we don't have only to deal with a shortage of things. Uh, we can send containers of medications to Turkey, but how can you deal with the bureaucracy in getting these medications and medical supplies across the border? How can you deal with the bureaucracy of the United Nations? How can you reach areas under siege? We have one million people inside Syria under complete siege. How can you reach to them and get them uh, life-sustaining medications and so forth? So advocacy is very important tool that we have been using also to um, to apply pressure to save lives inside Syria. Well, thank you very much, Hanas. Your article describes the origin of the 
tele-ICU program, how it operates, and how it's expanding. Please tell us the beginning of the story. How did you get interested in this, and how did you get it up and running? Uh, thank you for having us today. Uh, again, like uh, the program started when I was a first-year fellow. Uh, I, uh, that was in 2015, uh, in October. Uh, I was watching a YouTube video of a very poorly delivered CPR in, uh, in an area under uh, airstrikes, actually, in Homs suburb. Uh, so I decided to, to go down and uh, help those people, like teaching some of the nurses how to, to do like, some ICU care because I was a fellow and I had some experience. So I was shocked at that time that there was no active uh, ICU in the areas which are outside the regime uh, control. So I, I moved to Plan B. The Plan B was training some of the nurses and, uh, in Turkey, and I skipped the idea of going down to Syria. I decided just to stay in Turkey, train some of the nurses. As a pilot project, sent two nurses with an IP cameras and satellite internet and start to contact, communicate with them uh, on a daily basis. And uh, I thought, like, if this program will succeed, we'll continue to more hospitals. So in October 2012, uh, we trained, I trained 17 patients in Antakya, uh, 17 uh, nurses, I'm sorry, in Antakya, Turkey. And we, we picked the, the, the best two of them, and we sent them down uh, with, uh, with satellite internet, two IPs cameras, two ventilators, and one CPR uh, equipment, and, and some basic medications. Uh, and we started communicating with them in January 1st, 2013. And uh, so we started personally myself at the beginning with the nurses. The whole support and the money came from uh, SAM, Syria American Medical Society. There are other organizations called Syrian Expatriates Organization supported with uh, the tele stuff like the satellite internet and the IP cameras at that time. So we started with uh, those two nurses in the southwest suburb of Idlib and we uh, served in one month 40 patients. Those patients, only 30 of them survived. Uh, most of them were civilian, and uh, they were injured by airstrikes, most likely. And uh, 30 of them, again, survived, and those they will never survive if we did not deliver the service. So this was our pilot project. So I reached back again to SAMS. I told them, you know, we have successful experience here. Let's expand. And later on, we expanded to Aleppo and to Damascus suburb and to more hospitals and Idlib governance. The program has come from nowhere to a substantial initiative in a matter of months, which is quite extraordinary from a United States perspective. Tell us a little bit more about how tele-ICU in Syria differs from tele-ICU programs that United States physicians are more familiar with in our country and perhaps also how it differs from tele-ICU relief efforts elsewhere in the world. Actually, there is big substantial differences between uh, the tele-ICU in the uh, United States and uh, the one in Syria. Uh, you know, like to establish a program here needs a lot of cost, a lot of logistics, needs uh, in the United States, I mean, a lot of efforts uh, and a lot of policies and coordinations between hospitals. Over there, we just uh, needed the satellite internet. We were using uh, like some kind of social media to communicate with the nurses on the ground. And uh, we used like Skype 
uh, application called Viber and other application called WhatsApp to communicate with them on a daily basis. We used very simple IP cameras and we used uh, DSL internet or satellite internet and uh, we started communicating from day one. So there's a huge difference between establishing the program. Here we can just have somebody to go to the hospital. I, we want the people on the, inside the hospital to like the ideas, and we need dedicated people from here to volunteer uh, working with the hospitals in there, and then the program will start. There is a huge difference also in the daily practice, like uh, there is a lack of resources in there. The program, actually one of the m most important benefits of the program is like, spotting a light on the, the lack of resources in there and guiding SAMS and other organizations in delivering uh, resources and services to the people inside. For example, when we started in Aleppo, there was only 35 uh, physicians, all of them were surgeons, providing care to 2.5 million people, as estimated in Aleppo. Now, actually, a lot of uh, uh, people like left the city already because uh, of the airstrikes and the war. But at the beginning, those 35 surgeons were delivering care of internal medicine, treating chronic diseases, taking care of internal medicine patients in ICU, and taking care of injured people after surgeries. So when we started, we delivered the new lines of service between, uh, very different from their practice, and we started to spot the light of the real resources uh, this hospital uh, they need. For example, when we started, there was no oxygen in the governance of Idlib, uh, more than 40%, and the same problem now we're facing with one of our newer hospitals in Damascus suburb. There was no blood gas machines, no, no basic labs, no basic antibiotic, no basic sedatives. And so the huge, huge difference in practice and the huge difference also in resources because of the war. Uh, this you, can, you never see in the United States and any other places in the world. And also, you're dealing with the people over there. They are their life under threat. They are at night. They are away from the families, and they just volunteer to stay in the hospitals to help the people in Syria. They are under amazing amount of stress. They are, their life of, and, uh, is under threat on a daily basis. Many times we were talking to them, there was an airstrike and they had to, to leave the hospital. Uh, many times uh, they were not able to communicate because the airplane was flying over them. Uh, we lost sometimes some patients because of airstrikes. So we're dealing with people under huge amount of stress and we have to accommodate and we know that uh, or imagine ourselves that we are living in their world so we understand where they're coming from and how to deal with them. As we speak, Cities are under active siege in northern Syria. Russian airplanes are heavily bombing civilian centers in the north of the country in anticipation of a major ground advance by soldiers loyal to al-Assad. Syrian refugees from Aleppo and Idlib provinces are gathering together just below the Turkish border seeking relief. Please bring us up to date and how these most recent hostilities are affecting your relief efforts. Actually, this is a daily bombing and a daily displacement of uh, the civilians from their cities affecting us on a daily basis. We are having like more and more issues uh, delivering uh, resources inside the cities and to the hospitals we are operating in. We're losing every day more nurses and more uh, people were trained over the last three years to work with us. They're fleeing out of the country. So the people inside, they're losing more help. The amount of airstrikes, especially with the newer Russian bombing, is affecting our, 
our also effort to, to escort patients from the hospitals. So our role in the hospitals actually in the past, uh, especially till now actually, especially in Aleppo, we used to triage patients between the centers depending on the pressure on the centers and the hospitals. With the airstrikes and with, with targeting ambulance, we ha- we're having very hard time, uh, ambulance cars, we're having very hard time transporting patients and triaging patients between hospitals. We're also having, especially in the last two weeks, uh, a lot of trouble or problems triaging patients from inside Aleppo to Turkey who they need like extra care outside the, the range of our ICU. So th- this bombing and uh, the increase in the hostel activities really affecting the delivery of the healthcare. In the Baytij area, in the Damascus suburb, we're, we're not able to provide the very vital and important like stuff needed in the ICU, like oxygen more than 40% and some very important antibiotic and uh, some imaging uh, also because this area is under siege. And we're not able to provide formulas for the newborn babies uh, and we're not able to provide like nutritional stuff for the patients inside too, and TPN and other stuff for, this, uh, for the surgical patients. So if I may add, uh, um, that in the last few months, uh, we've seen the impact of the siege in many communities inside Syria. So there's about 45 uh, cities and villages and communities that under complete siege, about 95% of them, according to the United Nations, by their own government. So one of the areas, for example, around Damascus, East Al-Ghuta, has a population of 400,000. And this area has been under siege for three years. And the siege means that there is no electricity, there is no phone line, there is no clean water, there is no vaccinations, uh, and medical convoys and humanitarian convoys are only allowed when the authorities uh, allow to them in many times once a year or a couple of times a year. According to the United Nations, only 10% of their requests to enter areas under siege Mm -hmm. have been accepted by the Syrian authorities. And because of that, we're seeing extreme cases of malnutrition that we've never seen in Syria before the crisis. So we're seeing children dying of starvation. We're seeing marasmus and kwashiorkor core in Syria for the first time. Uh, in my last visit to Idlib, for example, uh, I spoke with one of the pediatricians who's telling me that the rate of uh, severe malnutrition in Idlib city, which is not under siege, but it's considered an area that is difficult to access, is five times uh, more than the pre-crisis level. The bombing itself is adding, of course, uh, a lot of hardship. So uh, today, this morning, we had a meeting with our physicians inside Aleppo through uh, WhatsApp, uh, which is the way of we communicate with the people inside Syria, uh, WhatsApp or Vibers. Um, and uh, what they told us that there are about 70,000 newly displaced people who were displaced from Aleppo city uh, moving northward. But even with that, when they reach uh, the Turkish border, they're not allowed into Turkey. And when they go into the refugee camps or internally displaced people camps, then they are also bombed by the same Russian jets that are bombing them in Aleppo. So civilians are trapped between the hardship of siege and hardship of bombing. Uh, Aleppo, um, there's only one small road right now that can access the city of Aleppo, which has right now a population of 400,000 people. Uh, the doctors inside Aleppo think that maybe half of them will be displaced if this road has uh, cut completely, which looks like that's, that's the strategy of the uh, Russian bombing and the um, Assad troop movement. And w- if Aleppo became under siege, then what we're seeing on the TV in Madaya, 
will be much more horrible. And whatever we can try to provide the city, uh, we're providing medical supplies, we're providing diesel fuel, will not, get, will not be enough for more than two or three months. Sahar, I understand that the Assad government has made it illegal for physicians to provide clinical services inside rebel territories of the country. If I understand that correctly, Anas, the people on the other end of your tele-ICU services who survived the current hostilities might be subject to arrest if their hospitals and healthcare facilities are overrun by government forces. Do I have that right? Every healthcare professional in Syria is a target uh, if you happen to treat uh, whether it's civilians who are uh, living in areas that are outside of the control of the government or if you uh, are uh, treating people who are injured in the hostilities. And this, of course, is against any medical ethics that we know. It's against the Geneva Convention. It's against, against international humanitarian law, which and the United Nations law that actually clearly dictate that physicians and health care workers and, and nurses should be allowed to treat injured, even fighters. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about civilians who are injured in the hostilities or civilians who need, you know, oral antibiotics or they need treatment or surgeries in areas that are also outside of the control. Before this crisis reached to this extent, doctors who lived um, under the control of the Syrian government in cities like Homs and Damascus and so forth, if they offered to treat people who were injured in the demonstrations, they were detained, they were tortured, and many of them died under torture inside the prison. So we really talked, we are talking about the horrible situation that healthcare workers in Syria that are facing. And I think that international medical organizations like ATS and others should be a little bit more vocal in raising these issues to protect healthcare in areas in conflict. Zaire Saul and Anas Mugabri, thank you very much for writing for Annals ATS and for sharing your comments with us today. You brought a remarkable dimension in critical care medicine to the attention of our broader community. Best wishes in your ongoing efforts, and please, both of you, be safe and well. Thank you very much.